0: Straight up, 6 o'clock by my watch means it's time for the one and only Big Six here on 1045 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. Blessed to have you as a part of my audience. My name, Jason Martin. You can find me on Twitter at JmartZone. You can also find us at 615 737 1045. That's 615 737 1045. Ryan Albany's behind the glass, spinning the dials radio style for me. He will do a fantastic job this evening. I'm blessed beyond measure, all reasonable and otherwise. Hope you recognize that you are as well. Hope this finds you and yours doing exceedingly well in your life. And my DMs are always wide open at jmartzone for a faith-based conversation. So I'm going to say some things tonight you're probably not going to like. And then the final segment, I'm going to talk a bit about September 11th and just tell you the story of where I was on that day because we all remember exactly where we were how we found out, and all of those things. There have been great tributes played. We just heard one, as a matter of fact, to N3HL. I just watched the president, George W. Bush, at the time, throw that first pitch out with the FDNY jacket on, Piazza hit that home run, all of those things. But I want to talk about what's happening in sports, and I want to do it maybe in a different way. John McMullen of TSN in Canada, he also works in Philadelphia, tweeted out earlier today, people need to understand the difference between a civil suit and a criminal complaint. This is not going to affect Antonio Brown's playing status, no matter how salacious any headline is, unless the Patriots themselves decide to cut bait. Antonio Brown is in the news yet again because it's a day that ends in Y in 2019. This time, his former trainer accusing him of... Three different instances of rape and sexual assault in 2017 and 2018. What McMullen says in this tweet is not incorrect, although there is the commissioner's exempt list that Adam Schefter and others have pointed out could join this. But this is a civil suit, and we don't know anything yet, and that's a dangerous precedent to set. Not that the NFL hasn't been getting involved and doing things wrong in this regard for years. We don't know what happened. We don't know what didn't happen. Drew Rosenhaus, his agent, came out and said that he and Antonio Brown considered that the this might surface. They potentially saw this coming. They didn't mention if the Pats knew it ahead of signing him. I read one report a couple of minutes ago that said they did not. This caught them off guard. The emails that were released last night are disgusting. Assuming they're his, even though they don't intimate any kind of forced sexual contact, it doesn't mean they're not disgusting. And we have a man here in Antonio Brown who is about as anti-sympathetic as it gets at present. His act with the Raiders is one of the more unprofessional things you're going to see an athlete do. And I'm going to stop right there for a second, as a matter of fact, because i got a bone to pick with some people in the media. Some of them are friends or people that I know. So Mike Greenberg on ESPN on Monday morning said on TV that the way Antonio Brown behaved in Oakland was the most unprofessional thing he'd seen an athlete do. And then people ran to their Twitter accounts to go after Mike Greenberg and say, hey, Aaron Hernandez murdered someone. OJ Simpson killed two people. Folks, those are crimes. When I read unprofessional or when I hear someone say unprofessional, that feels more like something work related. Now I'm not the biggest Mike Greenberg fan, but this was some serious look at me for those going after him. Do you really think that Mike Greenberg forgot about those things? He didn't mean to include those things. It's not as if he believes that what Antonio Brown did was worse than murder. Those things are far worse. And now you get Antonio Brown being accused of rape and sexual assault. That's far, far, far worse. But work-related. That's pretty daggone unprofessional what Antonio Brown did in Oakland. We've seen some coaches get shoved. I would actually say the malice in the palace might be the most unprofessional thing I've seen an athlete do at work. But A.B. in Oakland, even how he got himself out of Pittsburgh, it's about as low-rent and pathetic as I've personally ever seen. This is a professional setting, so I need you to leave O.J. and leave Aaron Hernandez and leave those kinds of things out of this. Maybe, maybe the Tanya Harding thing, if you believe she was absolutely involved in it, you could put that there. But these Hernandez and OJ things, they're not equatable with the AB situation in Oakland unless you just want to hear yourself talk, which unfortunately most media do. Sometimes I'm guilty of that, maybe too often. But there's a major difference, folks, between unprofessional and inhuman. Those categories really don't need to overlap. Work is the least of the concern when something is inhuman. But I want to go even further with this take discussion. This AB complaint, the civil complaint that's been filed and everything that's happening, we've got individuals on both sides of this talking. And I'm seeing at least some degree of it on all sides obnoxious. Last night at J Zone, I tweeted out something that I truly believe might be one of the more intelligent things I've said in a while. I'm I'm usually critical of a lot of my own opinions about five seconds after I say them, as most of us are. But really, I think the only intelligent, the only smart take to have on Antonio Brown's newest problem, the sexual assault and the rape charges filed by his former trainer, is this. As nasty as it would be, as ugly as. And repulsive as it would be to hope she's lying, I desperately hope she is lying. Because the alternative is that a woman's safety and her inner security was violated by another human being. Victims are destroyed for the rest of their lives because of stuff like this. You can read account after account after account. They don't get over it. Even though a false accusation is going to be hideous. If it were to be if that were to be what it was. That's nothing compared to this actually being true. But we don't know. My hope is merely that no woman was actually assaulted or treated in a sexually abusive or non consensual fashion. It's that simple. There is virtually nothing worse someone could do to someone else than that. The other thing, though, is eliciting an eye roll for me. I'm seeing a lot of people either posting or retweeting others. And they're saying things like Or they're basically saying things generally that are like, if you're a man, you should have no opinion on this, and you should keep your mouth shut because of this reason or that reason, and don't tell me you've got a daughter, and don't tell me you've got a wife, and don't tell me you've got a mother, and all of these things. Folks, you might not like it, but everybody is entitled to have an opinion, even if it's wrong. And I have found that attempting to possess just about any issue—now, there can be exceptions— But usually, attempting to possess an issue simply quells discussion that I think might actually be necessary, because people that are wrong learn how to be right by listening to others. Usually, though, it's your own horrible take being corrected in a respectful manner that actually helps you grow. It is selfish to hold back respectful criticism of someone else, just to hold that in when you could actually help them. People don't see their own flaws. Sometimes they have to be unearthed. But there's nothing out there to criticize if people are just told to shut up and stay in their lanes. There are some really bad takes here all across the board, mainly because people are jumping to one of two conclusions when there is zero reason to do so yet because we know zilch. But the... You don't know what it's like, crowd. That's right. I don't. We don't. But that doesn't mean that a lot of folks aren't going to have opinions. There are a whole lot of people that make a living talking about sports that never played on the professional level. I'm one of them. There are many opinions. The vast majority of opinions in this country about any issue are ill-informed or badly informed or just completely uninformed that's just the way it is people are going to say things and they're going to think things that are egregiously ignorant that's where much much if not all the worst stuff comes from now sometimes it's going to be inherited but a lot of really evil thoughts and opinions are born and bred in just true sheer ignorance the mistake that people today are making is in merely telling people to shut up and not actually rebuking them thoughtfully. The answer is to tell them what they don't know, to actually spend the time to educate them without immediately jumping to silence them or verbally attack them. Because that gets you nowhere. That is what leads to the extremes we see on social media that are unhelpful to everybody. When you are put on the defensive, you are no, no, no longer listening to what the other person has to say. When you put somebody on the defensive, they're no longer listening to you. All they're doing is trying to find a strategy to go on the offensive, and they dislike you immensely. Bad opinions need to be surfaced, and then you work to erase them. The worst is when we don't know the bad opinions because then they're never actually going to have a chance to change. They exist, but they have to be discredited properly or they're just going to expand or propagate like weeds. Think about, like, sometimes you'll see somebody say something absolutely repugnant on Twitter, right? How many times just in your own brain have you said, well, at least I know where that person's coming from? It's better to know than not to know. A weird example. Right now, I'm actually in the process of trying to learn Spanish again. I barely kind of got there. I did Latin in high school and in college because I thought it would be sort of the – it's sort of how other languages are built, but I didn't stick with it. There was a time when I thought maybe I'd be an interpreter because memory is something that I was blessed with as a strength. But So I'm going back, and I'm trying to learn Spanish right now, and I'm having all kinds of problems – with verb conjugation, because it's confusing in Spanish with all the endings, the verb endings. Now, if I had a teacher, now I'm doing this myself through online means, but if I had a teacher and that person did nothing but belittle me and try to silence me, rather than just helping me and showing me where I was wrong, how much of what she said or he said would I actually hear? I wouldn't hear anything else. The only thing that I would learn through that means is that the teacher's a jerk, and then I would just entirely shut down. Folks, nobody out there remotely sane has the rape is good opinion, or a racist opinion, or a sexist opinion, or anything like that. Nobody sane has those opinions. And I mean saying in that there are some things that are just so far off the reservation and so evil that you can't actually have a conversation with those people. People are out here, they're commenting with incomplete information. If not about the crime itself in general, then about this case specifically. How about we slow down? let's just wait to see what comes from all of this and see what facts actually come from all of this. Maybe we're never going to know enough, but it is inappropriate and wrong to either condemn Antonio Brown or free Antonio Brown in your own mind because you're just as likely to be dead wrong, and this is not just blowing a math problem. This is a big-time issue. I'm not giving you all the legal Stuff here because Michael McCann and folks like that have done a great job with that today. And you can find those articles and read about the complaint and everything, all those things. I'm not going to read the emails to you because they're heinous and inappropriate for pretty much any age, I would say. I just look at this entire thing and say the only cogent take, the only thing that is thoughtful to say about this entire situation is I pray it is not true. I don't care what you think about Antonio Brown. I don't care how little sympathy or zero sympathy you have for Antonio Brown. This isn't about Antonio Brown. It's simply about I hope a woman was not actually sexually assaulted. A lie would be bad. Rape would be far worse. That's all we need to say right now. Until there's more evidence, until something is said, yes, Antonio Brown is a rich athlete, Could there be extortion here? Could there be trying to cash in here? Yes, there could. Could this woman have been assaulted and raped? Yes, she could have. None of this is good. And the timing of it is even more questionable, yes. But we just don't know enough to be running off at the mouth about whether or not something is true. But we don't need to silence people for having opinions or daring to say things like, I have a daughter or I have a wife or I have a mother and then just saying, stay in your lane and shut up and we'll tell you what to think. No. No one's going to listen to that. No one's going to hear that. They're just going to shut down, and then you're not actually going to be able to reach them. Just a little bit of food for thought. When we come back, is Jeremy Pruitt going to survive at Tennessee? I'll discuss. It's a big six on 104.5 The Zone. So Welcome back to the Big Six Little Pete Yorn. Last weekend for you, we're brought to you by Renters Warehouse, dedicated to helping homeowners benefit from the rental boom by renting their homes the easy way. Renters Warehouse, you can't buy happiness, but you can rent it. So one-sixth of the 2019 college football season is done. Tennessee's 0-2 for the first time since 1988. This is the one sport where you can't have losses like this, like Tennessee has, like Jeremy Pruitt has. It's just simple math. Lose a baseball game, that's one 162nd. It's 182nd of a hockey season, an NBA season. But in college football, you've now had a terrible one sixth of your season. You got 10 more games left, yes, but already a decent slice of that pizza has been eaten. That's why football ratings are what they are. That's the number one reason for it. Because inherently in our brains, everything means something. One loss can be a wrap if it's at the right time. Especially in college football when only four teams get to play in anything that counts when all is said and done. Jeremy Pruitt, after the loss to BYU, decided that Saturday night would be the best time to passively, aggressively throw players under the bus. Then he realized that was a bad look, and he started to take a bit of responsibility as Monday and Tuesday came. But we're at a point now where historically it's year two when you're supposed to see the biggest jump in a head coach. And we're seeing a major regression, both in the head coach and potentially from the quarterback also. Now, it may take some time for Jared Garantano to feel Jim Chaney's offense. That's time you really don't have if you're a Tennessee fan and if you want your team to play in an exhibition bowl game in December or January. But it's bigger than that because of Pruitt. Pruitt looks less prepared to be a head coach this year than last year. He loves coaching defense, but he doesn't appear to like or be particularly good at basically anything else that surrounds coaching defense. To be a head coach, You have to be equipped and able to be a CEO. It's not just the X's and O's. If you're a coordinator, that's all about ball. That's what Dave McGinnis told me about Matt LaFleur going from offensive coordinator here in Tennessee to the head coach in Green Bay because I asked him what the difference is between being a coordinator and a head coach, and that's what he told me last year. Coordinator, it's all about football, football, football. And that's all you've heard from Jeremy Pruitt since the day he was hired in Knoxville. And it's what you've heard about him and what you've seen him report since he was hired. His hobbies are football. His loves are football. What do you like to eat? Football. What do you like to do? What's your favorite movie? Football. Okay, what about your second favorite movie? The sequel to football, also called Football. A head coach, though, has a lot of other to deal with in that gig. And right now, Jeremy Pruitt is proving not to be interested in it not to be adept at it, or even basically even competent at it. Anybody can put their foot in their mouth, but comparing Tennessee football that you are at the helm of to the Titanic, which is what Jeremy Pruitt did after the BYU game, what on earth even is that other than wrong and bad? But back to the CEO idea, there are some people that just aren't meant for it. Some people are, they're meant to be like micromanagers underneath the top spot. It's a mentality. It's a mindset that's just different. If you aren't capable of being kind of more the overseer, if you don't trust others to handle the various departments, the finances, whatever it might be, you're not going to be effective in that job. Any regional manager or even assistant to the regional manager or assistant regional manager or assistant to the regional manager, any of them, they come into the stores in their region and they're going to look for certain standards. They're going to make sure that loss prevention is under control, that things are organized properly, structured properly, payroll is under control, employees aren't being mistreated. They're going to talk to some customers as well. They're going to make sure the right people are in place to keep those numbers where they should be. What the regional manager never does is take control over every one of those individual stores that he visits or she visits. That's not the job. The job is to manage the people put in charge of those individual stores. So let me ask you this. Does Jeremy Pruitt strike you as someone who manages managers? Or does he strike you as someone who is managed by those managers? And in his specialty, in his department, he's really good. But outside of that, he's a disaster if you were to actually promote him higher than that. And then there's this other thing that really bothers me about Pruitt, and that's how he seems to worship programs other than his own. So he was asked... About one of the players, I can't remember who it was. He was asked about this last week. He was asked about how good one of these guys was, one of these Vols, I think it was a linebacker. And he said, he's good enough to play at Alabama. Like, I get it. But that's kind of the dumbest thing you could say as the head coach of Tennessee. Because what Vols fan wants to be reminded of the mediocrity and the failure of that program? (laughs) 92,000-plus showed up and cheered their guts out for Tennessee on Saturday, a week after that historic atrocity against Georgia State. That's remarkable. That shows resiliency. It shows loyalty, maybe even to a fault for Vols fans. But here you are with the head coach intimating that there are some dudes here that are actually good enough to be at a real football school like Alabama. Maybe I'm just overreacting to that comment. But it struck me as soon as I read it. There is zero reason to mention Alabama when you're the head coach at Tennessee unless you're directly asked about how their season is, and then you can Belichick it and say we're worried about Miami. Or if it's game week against the Tide, then then of course you can talk about them. But it is not the third Saturday in October. All you have to do is walk outside and feel that 100-degree heat that we had today, and you'll know it's not the third Saturday in October. Jeremy, if you love Alabama that much, and I get that, believe me, then stay there. Don't go somewhere else and remain like full-on heart-eye emojied over them. That's like being a fan of a team your whole life, but being an athlete, getting drafted by another team, and then still hoping that the squad that you were a fan of wins the championship over the team you're on. This is when you need to grow the heck up. College football is more about the head coach than any other sport in America, even though it's important in all of them. Yes, it is. None come close to college football, especially in the level of power that college football coaches wield. And for the past decade, and we're we're just continuing to tack on years to it, Tennessee has done a putrid job at figuring out who should have that position for their program. There was nobody out there that was going to pull the Vols immediately out from the wreckage in year one. Nobody that wasn't at least already being paid multi-millions to succeed somewhere else. And I like some of what I saw from Jeremy Pruitt last season. But this year, I'm seeing somebody that's just more and more ill-equipped and maybe even unfit for the job that he holds. I kind of have thought for a few years now at least that Derek Mason would eventually leave Vanderbilt, go back to being a defensive coordinator making over a million dollars for somebody in the championship picture because he's a stellar defensive mind. He's great at that job. And Pruitt is as well. But neither of them, neither of them, appear to be particularly strong head coaches. So in the state of Tennessee, where you have two Southeastern Conference programs within the borders, you may not possess one even mildly standout head coach. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is a massive problem. You can dismiss the national media all you want and what they're saying, how they reacted to Greg Schiano, how they reacted to John Curry and Mike Leach and that whole fracas. But when you go out and you go 0-2 to Georgia State and BYU and that media is against you and your fans, it's going to get ugly quick. And I'm going to mention what I said on the Quick 6 debut episode on Monday, which if you have not checked out, that's my reaction to football that hits Mondays Via the podcast portal, we're about to have links for you to be able to subscribe to that. This week, it was 40 minutes of nonstop me breaking down everything in college football and the NFL. And we hope you check that out. But yeah, I said this. You may not care what they say. But 95% of this country, what they know about the UT football program comes from those guys. It doesn't come from Joe Rex Road. It doesn't come from David Ubbin. It doesn't come from Jason Swain. It doesn't come from Joey Kent. It doesn't come from Chad Withrow. It doesn't come from Jonathan Hutton. It doesn't come from Kevin Ingram. It does not come from Brent Doherty. It does not come from me. It doesn't come from anybody local. So the perception of the program amidst most of the country at large is awful. And it has the potential to influence people that are going to make decisions relative to bowls and relative to playoffs. The good news, however, Vol fan, is it's not going to influence playoff folks because Tennessee's not going to be in that discussion anytime soon, or certainly not this year, and maybe not until they have yet another head coach. They'd better go beat Chattanooga. And I still, I might be insane, I still think they can beat Florida. So either I'm dumb, which is highly possible, or this is the ultimate Jekyll and Hyde squad where they have somehow been inoculated against success for so long that they can't even manufacture it on a consistent basis. It's kind of gross. And I hate to say this, Vols fan, because you've been super loyal and you deserve better. But your football team is a dumpster fire. And the head coach might be the biggest problem this problem starts at the top. It doesn't start on the field. We'll be right back. This is a Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Zone. It's The Big Six here on 104.5 The Zone. Glad to have you with us. I'm Jason Martin. I'm on Twitter at jmartzone. Some of you responding to what I've had to say tonight, as I thought you might. If you want to come meet me, you can do so tomorrow down at 2500 Cruising Street, 10 to noon. I'll be at Irby Electric, grand opening of their brand new spot. They're going to have lunch and tours and door prizes. We're going to be giving out tickets to shows, registering you to potentially go see a concert this fall. So looking forward to seeing some of you out there, downtown Nashville at 2500 Cruising Street. I'll be at Irby Electric again from 10 to noon tomorrow. No big six tomorrow. You will hear from me on Friday. Trey Wallace. From down in Knoxville will join me. We'll talk a lot of Vols on that show, plus the Tennessee Tailgate Show with Joey Kent. Post-game addition, because of the noon kick the next two weeks, we will be on around 5 p.m. on Saturday to react to what Vols fans, you better hope, is your first win of the season against UT Chattanooga. Also, the New York Times has just posted a story here in this last half hour or so that justify the 13th Triple Crown champion failed a drug test a month before and probably shouldn't have even been allowed to run. So that's interesting. I don't know that it rises to the level of us doing a segment on it, but we'll keep our eyes on it. Let's talk about Odell Beckham Jr. for a second. Not about what he did on the field on Sunday against the Titans, but yes, about that watch. This from NFL.com. Just let me read this to you. I'll still be wearing it. Beckham said Tuesday, the same way I wear it every day, I go to practice. When I go here, I go there, been wearing it. Take a shower with it on. It's just on me. What they're talking about is a Richard Millet watch, I believe is how you pronounce this. Could be wrong. It retails at around $190,000. you have heard anything from one hundred sixty dollars to $350,000 for the watch that Odell Beckham Jr. was wearing on the field? on Sunday against the Titans. That violates an NFL rule that prohibits wearing, quote, hard objects, unquote. And OBJ says it's plastic, which led me to think, how many plastic watches cost $190,000? If I had Odell Beckham Jr. money, I still wouldn't have a $190,000 watch. I'd probably still have this same Apple watch that I'm wearing right now. Now, I might have sprung for the new model every year. But he says even further, he goes further, and he says he's just being a, given a hard time because he's Odell Beckham Jr. Quote, if anybody else would have worn the watch, if it was just a $20 watch, it wouldn't have been no problem. That's just my life. If it ain't this, it's something else. If it wasn't the watch, it would have been the way I'd tied my shoes. Odell Beckham Jr. is dead right about one of the statements that he made in that quote. That's just my life. If it ain't this, it's something else. Correct. But it's not because it's you that this is a story. It's because, Odell, you are you. It's a story because you had to wear a watch on the field, a $190,000 watch. Now, there was a punter, Reggie Roby, back in the day with the Dolphins that used to wear like a $20 digital watch because he actually wanted to see how long his punts were traveling in the air. Which, okay, maybe that shouldn't have been allowed either. But we don't need fashion statements to be made on the field. It's called a uniform because, hint, the word uniform means the same. Standards, consistency, all of those things. Not about you. If you listen to T.J. Zada and other people talking about the Antonio Brown helmet mess, they said that the reason that people have been tied to helmets for such a long time is because of aesthetics. They want to look good. And that Antonio Brown was much more about how it looked than anything else. If you watched Hard Knocks, he talked about how all the other helmet models are ugly. Dude, it's a helmet. Put one on and go out there and catch fifteen hundred yards worth of touch worth of yards and you know twenty touchdowns or whatever it is, and take your butt to Canton as the Hall of Fame level receiver that you are. Odell Beckham Jr. wearing a one hundred ninety thousand dollar watch on the field was designed for us to talk about Odell Beckham Jr. wearing a $190,000 watch on the field. The next thing I'm waiting to see is he has some kind of endorsement deal with Richard Millier. And Odell Beckham Jr., this is what he does. He's another another one of those non-Julio Jones types that is going out here and trying to make himself the story and then turns around and calls himself the victim, just like Antonio Brown's the most misunderstood player in the NFL. If it wasn't me, we wouldn't even know about this watch. Well, dude, you wore a $190,000 watch. How'd that story get out? And you you shouldn't have been wearing it. If you look at the rule book, there's no reason for you to be wearing it. You don't need the time. But then you look at just a couple of days ago, It was revealed that Odell Beckham Jr. is the first-ever adult athlete endorser for Pedialyte, which is used for for a variety of maladies and is now used more for adults than children. You know why? Because it is a ridiculous hangover cure. Odell Beckham Jr. of the weird video of a white powder on a pizza box with a stripper in a hotel room. Imagine where people are going to go when you're endorsing Pedialyte and you're Odell Beckham with your history. Things can be inferred. Optics matter. And, yeah, the reason this is a story isn't because it's you. They're not out to get you. It's because you're you, because this story doesn't exist for 99.8% of the players in the NFL. But Odell You have singled yourself out from the pack because, of course, you have a $190,000 watch. And I guess you were looking at that while the Titans beat your rear end by 30 on Sunday. We'll be right back. This is a Big Six on 104.5 The Zone. Final segment of the Big Six Vol Calls coming up next here on 104.5 The Zone. I'm Jason Martin on Twitter at JMartZone. We're brought to you by Renters Warehouse. They're dedicated to putting homeowners on the path to financial freedom through rent estate. Renting your home without having to do the hard stuff. Renters Warehouse, the rent estate company. I'll make you smarter here in just a couple of minutes with a crazy stat about the AFC South. There are a few other things going on. First off, back to Odell just for a second. The watch and the attention that it is bringing. If you cared about what it is that you did for a living, you'd just stop wearing it rather than make it a storyline so that you could talk about the Browns and Week 2 and just improving the chemistry between you and all of the new people there and the new pieces and that everything's going to be all right and all this. You'd be talking about football. You wouldn't be talking about how, oh, if it was, if it was anybody else, we wouldn't be talking about a watch. We, we might, but because it's you, because you're you, you're making it a story when you could just s- stop wearing it because it's ridiculous to wear a designer watch just to be seen on a football field, a one hundred ninety thousand dollar watch. And I heard this joke made by a couple of different people. Hopefully, you're not playing against Akib Tlaib this year. I kind of hope you are. He stole Michael Crabtree's jewelry. He will steal your watch, and that would be hilarious to watch if he were able to like take one the other way and rip that $190,000 timepiece off your wrist. I want to talk a little bit here about September 11th. There's not really a good way to segue to it. I have the freedom to spout out the takes that I have tonight and make a living doing this because of the sacrifice of a lot of other people, a lot of people that are stronger and better than me. I always look at our military and just say, I, I'm not capable of that. I look at our first responders and think, I don't know that I'm capable of that. I know that as a country, at that point in time, we were capable of not seeing anything when we looked at someone else other than American, friend, family. It didn't matter. I can tell you where I was that morning and that evening, and you can tweet me at jmartzone, and you can tell me where you were because we all have a story. The first plane, at least, actually, maybe both of them had already hit the towers before I was woken up by my two roommates as I was in college in Asheville, North Carolina, at this point in time. They had turned off my alarm clock when they realized, yeah, you're not going to class today. And so when I woke up, I smelled breakfast food. And they should have been at work. So the fact that they were there and I smelled eggs and bacon and things like that coming from the kitchen, it wasn't a big cooking household between the three of us either. I knew something was going on and I walked in and I just saw what was on the television and quickly got up to speed like I'm sure all of the rest of you did. And then for the next several hours, I stayed glued to that television. I grabbed a few eight hour VHS cassettes, threw them in our VCR and recorded because I wanted to have the original news footage for my children to watch one day. Not because I thought that it would be doctored or anything. And I wasn't thinking about that. I was just thinking, I want to have this, I want to have all of this. I don't want it to have to be put into a one hour special or things. I want them, if they wanted to, to be able to see what that day was like. And so for the next two days, really, I recorded nonstop CNN, and I would flip to NBC here and there and to ABC and things like that and try to get a sense of several different sources and just all that was being said and take it all in. That night, I had to go to work. I thought maybe I would not have to, but they needed me that night. And I look back on it and I think, yeah, you know what? That night, I definitely needed to be at work. Because at the time, while I was in school, I know I was working a couple of different jobs, but this particular job, I was delivering pizza. And that evening, no one left home. No one wanted to go anywhere. No one felt like turning on the stove and cooking a meal. They were all a captive audience to history that was unfolding before their eyes. And we were all in a bit of a fear that what we had seen was not the end. And we needed every update that could come through. And we were all just one. Whatever you were watching, we were all one. And so I delivered pizza that night. And it was one of the busiest nights of that job, which I only held for a couple of months because it just wasn't safe. So many homes would open the door. A third of them, maybe even more than a third of them, you could tell that tears had been shed that afternoon or that early evening. The tips were outrageous. It was, I mean, everybody was tipping me way more than they ever have. Like regular 20s and things of this degree for food that didn't even cost $20. Money didn't matter. Nothing mattered that night. And there were just a lot of There was a lot of love that evening. There were a lot of positive things being said, a lot of support from customer to delivery driver that night. There was a presence of unity. And it was born from the bravery. It wasn't born from as much of the pain, although we all felt for those that lost. It was for the unity of the time. And I don't know where you were, and I'm sure a lot of you have better stories than mine. But every year when I see hashtag never forget, and I see the stats of how many first responders and how many people that worked in that building went to sleep for the very last time next to their wives or in homes with their children or whatever those statistics might have been, it does make me stop and think. And it's been 18 years doesn't feel like it's been that long. But it is the kind of thing that should make you stop on a day like this, even with all of the takes that I've spouted tonight, and just take a little bit of inventory of the love that exists in your family or whatever it is your sphere of influence might be, and maybe just hug the kids a little tighter tonight or hug the wife a little tighter tonight and just realize how lucky you are and how blessed we all are to have had people better than us. Some of them pure innocence that were caught up in this, but those that responded to this at risk to their own lives. How special all of those people are. And I would just say I would pray for their families, even today, because I'm sure the loss is still felt just as strongly as it was then. But they are to be honored and respected and cherished. And, yes, never forgotten. And you know what? I had a stat about the AFC South. I'm going to save that for Friday. Never forget. Ball Calls is next. Clear eyes, full hearts, can't lose. God bless, and good night. On-